You're listening to Spectrum Stories, the podcast from Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. I'm Jacob Brogan. In this episode, we're talking about the juncture of anxiety and autism. The two conditions often co-occur, but anxiety can look different in people with autism and can be easily missed. I would say the thing that feels distinctive to me about the ways that people on the spectrum have talked about anxiety uh, to me and also in the written accounts that I've read has to do with how total these experiences of almost like phenomenological chaos or disorientation can become. There's a there's a experience that's sometimes called meltdowns um, that people on the spectrum talk about when a person becomes completely overwhelmed, um, their world can kind of fragment and it can feel very chaotic, very overwhelming, very disorganized. People sometimes lose control of their behaviors. People who can typically speak will sometimes lose language, lose their ability to communicate. Um, It's a very total kind of experience, and it can be hard to get out of. That's um, a certain kind or experience of anxiety that I hear about a lot more intensely among people on the spectrum than among people who are not. That was Elizabeth Fine, a clinical psychologist and psychological anthropologist at Duquesne University. As she suggests, individuals with autism can experience anxiety in acute, often overwhelming ways. What's more, as Wendy Nash-Moyal, a child and adolescent-focused psychiatrist at the Child Mind Institute in New York, points out, anxiety in autism comes in a variety of forms. At times, it's worry about the future. And when I mean the future, I mean sort of an uncertainty about what plans might be for a day, if things are going to work out according to plan. There's uh, repeated questioning that people interpret as anxiety, um, that it's very common in social interactions uh, for kids on the spectrum. And there are kids who are much more reserved and maybe less socially interested. Uh, So we also see a lot of selective mutism um, in that group. There are phobias. So sometimes the fixations that they have can also glob on to something that they're very afraid of. Um, So there can be phobias of elevators, dogs. Those are just two examples. So the link is there, but it's still difficult to say how often anxiety and autism occur together. As reporter Jessica Wright notes in an article on Spectrum about the intersection of anxiety and autism, studies attempting to pin down the proportion of people with autism who also have clinically significant anxiety have produced a staggeringly broad range, from 11 to 84%. One reason for that uncertainty may be that it's sometimes difficult to disentangle the symptoms of anxiety from those of autism, which can make it harder to get the correct clinical diagnosis. Matthew Siegel, director of the Developmental Disorders Program at the Spring Harbor Hospital in Maine, suggests that the challenge only increases when a patient lacks language, as is sometimes the case in those with autism. You know, the way we diagnose anxiety in neurotypical individuals is they tell you about it. They tell you if they have worries, if they have intrusive thoughts, if they have specific fears, um, and you're able to assess with them what are the features of the anxiety and then assess, well, how impairing is this anxiety? And so you can do that also with someone who's 
more verbal with autism, but when you have someone who's less verbal or nonverbal or less communicative, that, you know, I think increases the challenge. In her article, Wright explains that researchers are working to develop more sensitive and accurate screening tools to pick up anxiety in individuals with autism. But as Siegel points out, we also don't know exactly why anxiety and autism occur together so frequently. Well, that is that is the sort of million-dollar question, if you will. Why do we see what we call our anxiety, what providers might call anxiety, at a higher rate in individuals with autism? We know that across many psychiatric disorders, there are shared genetics, and so is there a shared genetic changes that both lead to uh, are associated with autism and also with anxiety disorders, so somewhat independently, but tracing back to the same genetic changes uh, is one question. That's certainly possible. Estimates put the heritability of anxiety at 30 to 40 percent, and even higher if you look at specific anxious traits. But as Siegel suggests, there may be other issues at play where autism is concerned. Indeed, the day-to-day experiences of many of those living on the spectrum may predispose them to anxiety is the experience of autism itself for the individual. Uh, some of the core features being challenges with orienting to social information, picking up cues on what is happening in the environment, what's expected of the individual and what behavior might be appropriate are some of the challenges in those skills, do they produce um, an anxious state? If you don't know what's expected of you, what's coming next, you could suppose that that might, you know, generate an anxiety state. Then there's the possible role of what Siegel describes as other core features of autism. The insistence on sameness, the restricted interests and repetitive behaviors, when those things cannot be met uh, or satisfied to the individual's desire, does that then generate anxiety, such as what people refer to as perseverating on changes in a schedule? Is that anxiety about the change um, is one way to interpret it. Elizabeth Fine echoes many of Siegel's observations. She proposes that in some cases, it may be difficult to fully separate anxiety and autism, partly because life on the spectrum can make the world a really anxiety-provoking place. So let's say you're driving home from work and you take a wrong turn. Um, All of a sudden, maybe it feels like you're not even driving home from work anymore. Who knows what you're doing? Um, A change in a part can feel like a change in, in the entire thing. So... This can lead to life feeling really unpredictable in a very deep way. And this contributes, I think, to a lot of the anxiety that people on the spectrum feel. And it's very closely tied into their being on the spectrum. Um, And very often the things that people will do to manage anxiety or respond to anxiety, like stimming, you know, seeking out sensory stimulation or engaging in kind of rhythmic movements, things that that people do to restore their sense of presence and predictability and stability, get read as as autistic symptoms. So anxiety and autism are are really closely tied and it can be hard to to pull them apart from each other. In some cases, I don't even know why you would. That squares with something that Dawn Prince-Hughes told me about her own anxiety. I really feel like that it's a disability of context when we start talking about anxiety or autism. And instead of looking at at the individual and specifically trying to label what exactly is wrong with the individual, 
we need to start stepping back and looking at how are these patterns of anxiety and things that look like autism and so forth, how are they patterns in a general population and how can we treat that problem as a whole rather than looking at a specific diagnosis for the individual. Prince Hughes is a primatologist who received an Asperger's syndrome diagnosis when she was in her 30s. In her memoir, Songs of the Gorilla Nation, she suggests that some of the anxiety she lived with before her diagnosis came from an effort to adapt to a world that wasn't really built for her forms of experience and feeling. Here's how she puts it at one point in the book. Like others who seek to be what they are not, we invariably end up with secondary problems engendered by chronic anxiety. As rage and frustration are pushed below our consciousness, we suffer depression. Somatic difficulties like stomach aches and headaches and other ailments can be chronic as a result of unrelenting anxiety and the repression of coping mechanisms while trying to fit in. Painful memories of past failures to be normal and mounting evidence of our inadequacies, our failed attempts to fit in, dog us. Comfort comes, oddly enough, in the form of increasing compulsions and a fierce rigidity that may cover the trail leading back to their causes. To Elizabeth Fine's way of thinking, one takeaway from accounts like this one is that we need to work toward a world that's more accommodating. I mean, that's the other thing. Is that it's hard to be around a person who's anxious uh, and who's vocally and visibly anxious. Um, and so what can we do to create social spaces, uh, for example, that are a little more tolerant uh, of the fact that sometimes people are going to get anxious. And when they get anxious, maybe they ask the same question over and over and over again, or maybe they flap, or maybe they rock, or maybe they need to take a walk. Um, these are things that people do and that are often really helpful for them. While we wait for the world to become more tolerant, though, it's important to help people here and now. As Moyal told me, it's important no matter how entangled anxiety and autism may be. Inevitably, those interventions have to take different forms for different people. There's never been a one-size-fits-all approach to treating anxiety, and the specificity of a given individual's experience of autism only complicates things further. By way of example, Moyal points to the way she might help a child negotiate a fear of flying. In a typical child, she says, she might work on exposure therapy, providing information about airports or maybe even bringing the child onto an airplane. That would be a component for a child with autism, but understanding that kids with autism often uh, need routines. I'd use that knowledge to present them with a routine for flying. I would use that knowledge to say, we need a backup plan because part of the, let's say, fear of flying may not really actually be the flight that might have a lot to do with the airport or the unpredictability of flight schedules. And what do we do if there are cancellations? Um, what do we expect from the airport? What do we do if you see a dog in the airport? Um, how do we manage the sensory, what can be a sensory overload of an airport, especially for a child on the spectrum? In a way, we, I'd like to say that we're always comprehensive in our treatment plans, but for a child on the, the spectrum, I would really do use like multiple systems to treat the anxiety. Further challenges arise around psychopharmaceutical treatment options, 
partly because there just isn't that much research into their effects on those with autism. Where I think we're on even less certain ground is in our psychotropic attempts to ameliorate anxiety, um, largely perhaps because we don't have a strong measure of anxiety and autism at this point, then we don't have clinical trials. There really has not been a single clinical trial attempting to study the treatment uh, in terms of medication, the treatment of anxiety and autism. Medications such as SSRIs have a good track record for treating anxiety in neurotypical youth, but there isn't any clinical evidence that they are as effective in people with autism. And what works for one individual on the spectrum with anxiety may not work for another. Prince Hughes, for example, told me that psychotropic treatment had sometimes deepened her anxiety. You know, you can certainly use chemicals to dull those sensations, but they don't go away. And I think in some cases, they even assert themselves more strongly. It's just uh, worse anxiety. And also, like pushing a bubble around under saran wrap, I think it'll just come out somewhere else, like all of a sudden you'll have more sleep disturbances or you'll have uh, different compulsions. Um, and oftentimes it's, it's different just enough that you won't really link it to the original anxiety. In her story for Spectrum, reporter Jessica Wright talks about some other ways of treating anxiety that have worked for some individuals with autism. One young man in the story, for example, finds it calming to run his hands through uncooked rice, letting it slip through the cracks of his fingers into a plastic bowl. Another more verbal man found that practicing mindfulness was useful, allowing him to better manage frustrating stimuli. This is all to say that the relationship between anxiety and autism is really complicated. Treatment models differ because anxiety differs, but it may still be useful to think about anxiety as a standalone issue, if only because doing so can encourage understanding, and because understanding can encourage compassion. You know, explanatory models are powerful. And so if there is an explanatory model for a behavior or a a set of circumstances that's problematic, and it's an explanatory model that makes sense to people, then I think it can be quite helpful. And so, for instance, um, you know, the child who is refusing to get into the car in the morning on the way to school, if that behavior is viewed as an oppositional or defiant behavior, perhaps because the thought is the child doesn't like school or doesn't like their teacher or something, then that's going to lead you down one path of how to try to address that and help the child. Uh, You know, you might get into more of a behavioral reinforcement reward system, um, other approaches. However, if instead that same behavior of refusing to get in the car is recognized to be part, let's just say, of an anxiety disorder, um, you're going to approach that very differently. You know, that the child is uh, fearful, let's say, of the car ride or or has anxiety about arriving at school. And so you're going to then approach that, I think, pretty differently. You're going to hopefully have a little more empathy for it, but also you're going to 
approach that by trying to lower the fear, you know, try to understand what what the fear is exactly, and then try to address it either cognitively or behaviorally, try to expose them slowly to the fear stimulus um, and kind of those other classic steps. So it's really a different treatment pathway. So I think it can be quite important to try to figure out what's going on. And I think it really helps people to have that kind of explanatory model. This has been an episode of Spectrum Stories, the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source for news and expert opinion on autism research. To read more on autism and anxiety, check out Jessica Wright's article, Unmasking Anxiety in Autism, available at spectrumnews.org. Audio for this episode was edited by Mickey Capper. I'm Jacob Brogan. <laughs>